Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. When you find out that one of your, someone you love is murdered in such a very violent way, there really isn't anything that's going to comfort you because all you want to do, all you can think about is, okay, this person is gone, but they also suffered. And when you, when you think about one of your loved ones suffering in such, even if it's just a short period of time that they suffered, it doesn't really matter. You, you think about their fear, you know, you just want to take that from them. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter next to Billy Jensen, and we've got special guest Jared in the house. He doesn't have a mic, but he's here in spirit, and I hope that you feel it, right? Yeah, I feel like we're just happier. Yeah. We are. He brings just like a light. a better vibe in the room. Yeah. Brings such a light. It's those golden locks. He has a middle part right now. Nobody can see it, but just imagine it. <laughs> just imagine him wearing a turquoise like bolero. Yeah, with a cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. We're really just trying to push Jared into country music. Yeah. That's the biggest goal of my life. <laughs> he says, He <laughs> says, okay. Um, Billy, I heard that you wanted to plug something really quick. I do have a plug. Uh, tomorrow night, there is an event at any, every Barnes & Noble store oh. in America all 650. It's called Crack the Case with Billy Jensen. And you can go and there is a special episode of uh, Murder Squad that we put out last week. You can listen to that episode and then we've been giving out clues on Barnes and Noble's um, uh, uh, Twitter or Instagram, one of those two. And then I'm going to give everybody who actually killed the person at the uh at the event and it's going to be prizes and games and all that kind of stuff prizes people can can talk about things and yeah it's it's a little like it's a little fun it's a little like like meetup type of thing yes you can win you have to solve the case though i know there's three suspects and it's it's a case from the 1940s and it's a murder of a singing waitress that's exciting okay well go check that out oh and i will be i will be at the one in glendale great oh you're gonna be there irl in he real still life. has what not time? invited in Glendale, us. California. What time? Uh, 6.30 or 7 or something uh, like that. I'm off. If it were later, I'd yeah. go. Okay, well, before we go into our day today, um, remember to stick around after our episode because we're going to kill some time and 
we're pretty much recapping the best day of our lives, which happened yesterday. And it involves some really epic photos that you will be seeing on your Instagram and possibly your new first degree icon yes. logo. Mm-hmm. All right, Billy, what's the day? Now, I like this when days fight each other. Uh-oh. And this is what's happening right now. What is it? Well, it's two, it's two sentiments that are fighting each other on the same day, I should say. It's National Department Store Day, and it's National Cut Up Your Credit Card Day. Ooh, that must be purposeful. Yes. So somebody was just like, oh, really? Well, watch this. Well, you know what? It's also, have you ever had a credit card issue? No. Like fraud? Well, no. Or Everybody's debt? had fraud, but you know, like. No debt, right, but fraud. Debt. Zero debt. Everybody has fraud. Everybody has fraud. It's also I national- haven't had credit card fraud. I've had my card number. Oh, I guess a little fraudulent activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not like identity theft. No. Don't get any ideas, people. I just knocked on wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. It's also National Boss Day. Oh. National Dictionary Day, but probably my favorite, it's National Fossil Day. What are you, Ross Geller from Friends? <laughs> Maybe. Jared, That's right. Ross, Ross was pretty much the, wasn't he the only guy with like... Ross was the loser. No, he uh, wasn't. No, he, he was a paleontologist. He, yeah, he worked oh, at the museum. Joey was the actor. Chandler did data something. The joke was no one knew what he did, <sighs> yeah. really. Can we talk about Phoebe Seinfeld? Was a, yeah. Phoebe was a musician. Yes, I just really and did was not just, like Friends. I love Friends. I don't like it. I had never right. got into Maybe it. Maybe you guys should like move in together and get a compound and I'll and just watch Seinfeld. Else. And we'll watch Seinfeld the whole time. You I like also, Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld, but it doesn't mean I have to hate Friends. Yeah, it does. Right. You have to choose yeah. one or the other. one or the other. Are you a Seinfeld person or a Friends person? Okay, if I had to choose between the two, I'd choose Seinfeld. Seinfeld but then Friends, then Frasier. Oh, see, oh. I, never, I never watched Frasier. That's your next thing. I told you. Frasier? It was so good. You'll love it. Okay. Well, that's enough of that. Let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In today's episode, we are going to explore many different themes. We've got poetic justice, we've got forgiveness, we've got open-mindedness, and we've got a story that continues to impact those who hear it so profoundly, even decades later, proving that while death is tangible and real, mortality is something we're faced with every day, we are able to transcend it with the ideals, morals, ethics and lessons we leave behind with our loved ones. And I think we're going to see an incredible example of these things today. Our setting for today's case is Kerrville, Texas. And on their website, the Chamber of Commerce says, quote, welcome to the heart of the hill country. Kerrville provides unparalleled natural beauty and quality of life. All of us who are lucky enough to live and work here feel as if we've won the life lottery. That's what it says now, but let's go back in time. We're going back in time to the summer of 1979, June 17th, to be exact. Donna Summer's song, Hot Stuff, had topped the charts for three weeks in a row, and Butch and the Sundance Kid, The Early Days, and Rocky II were in theaters. 
Kerrville, Texas was staunchly religious and very, very conservative. And it was that backdrop that fueled this wholesome Mayberry type town. They had an extremely low crime rate. There were very few locked doors. And it was a place where murders were pretty much unheard of. Right. And today's case is centered around one family, the Stotts family. And we're going to introduce them off the top because everything that has to do with today's story is connected to this family. And two of them are our first degrees today. So the dad in this family is Joe Stotts. Then we've got Betty Stotts, who's the mother. We've got Roger, who's the youngest, at 15. Then we've got Debbie, who's 20. Stephen, who's 21. And Ron, the oldest child, who's 22. And you'll be learning more about them throughout the episode, but it's the parents and four siblings slash children, uh, two of which are first degrees. It's centered all around this family and their connection to each other and their connection to this case, really, which is truly phenomenal. And here are our first degrees, Ron and Debbie, the children of Betty Stotts. Uh, yeah, we, we were not uh, very wealthy growing up. So the things that we tended to do tended to not cost a lot of money. Uh, we often, in the summertime, uh, load the whole family up in the back of the pickup truck and we would go to uh, the river and spend for the day. Uh, that was a, a, a big time thing for us. We spent hours in, uh, you know, just turning over rocks, looking for crawdags, just flashing away. We grew up in a small town back in a time when there really wasn't much crime. Uh, it was not uncommon for us to leave the, the, the house in the summertime in the morning and not come back until the, the uh, street lights came on. Uh, everybody pretty much knew each other. Um, it was kind of the idyllic childhood, I would guess. And Betty Stotts was really the backbone of this family. And although she was small, she was really petite, she was incredibly tough, and she was extremely smart. And she's described by her family and friends as someone who was an excellent listener, someone who really knew how to get people to open up to her. And she worked full-time at the local Texas Gold Stamp Redemption Center, but she also worked part-time at the Bolero Drive-In Movie Theater. And she worked there not just for the money. It was because she loved it. And everyone there knew her. Some people actually went to the drive-in not to see the movie, but just to sit down and chat with Betty. She was sort of like this therapist in town for those who needed, you know... A listening ear. A listening ear, yeah. And, you know, another thing about Betty was that she was deeply religious... But she also, she studied all aspects of religion and philosophy and life itself. She was really open-minded about religion, but she did, she, you know, she always carried her Bible and her, and her journal with her. And here's her first degree, Debbie. Uh, from a physical aspect, she was very small and petite, but uh, uh, she, she could... She could use a belt like the best of them when we needed discipline, and, uh, and she kind of she ran the family. We grew up in a Pentecostal church, but uh, my mom kind of uh, pulled away from that, I think, a, a little bit um, as we got a little bit older, and she started 
looking at different religions. And in her mind, and the way she always taught us was, there are a whole lot of different paths to the same place. And so she had several friends and they studied lots of different things. They not only studied the Bible, but they studied the Quran, they studied Buddhism, they studied everything. Anything, any religion you think of, she studied it and that taught us to have a very open mind when it came to uh, religions of other people. And, but in the community, there were a lot of people who came to our house just to um, unload, I would say unload for her uh, or with her because she was a great listener. And, uh, and she was almost like the therapist of the neighborhood, so to speak. And the drive-in was a central part of the Stotts family. Debbie had worked there first when she was a young teen. And at this point, her youngest brother, Roger, who was 15, was also working with Betty at the drive-in. And he was working at the concession stand. And if you've never been to a drive-in, here's Debbie explaining what it's like. You can imagine being in a car and, uh, and driving to a box office where you never get out of your car. You just hand the money over to the person, and then you drive around and, uh, and park, put the speaker inside the car with a huge screen in front of you, bigger than a billboard, uh, and you just sit back, and the movie, the movie shows on that screen. It's an incredible experience because um, you're outdoors. Uh, it's much more private than a movie theater. You can take your kids. Most of the time, if it's late at night, your kids are falling asleep in the back seat. And uh, it's just relaxing. It's a, much, it's a very relaxing atmosphere. So on the night of June 17th, 1979, Betty and her son Roger were slated to work at the theater together. The movie playing that night was Dirt, which according to BangShift.com was a documentary with a humorous, beer-drinking old man as a host. And it covers everything from sand drags to dune buggies to motocross to desert racing, short course off-road racing basically everything and the footage was taken from events from all over the country and it has this late decade music laid over that personifies 1979 betty and roger arrived at the drive-in between 7 30 to 7 45 that evening and when she got there she chatted with her boss about the weather and she was in pretty great spirits Right, so at 8.30, Betty reported to the small ticket booth that was made of metal and glass, and it was sort of at the front. And it's similar to a drive-through in that to buy a ticket, you don't have to get out of your car. So she reported to the booth because there were cars lining up. And there was a window she leaned out of. She collected $1.50 per person to those who lined their cars up to watch this movie. Children under 12 were free. And Betty used the back of an old movie calendar as scratch paper to kind of write down the license plate numbers and the total number of people in each car who had paid entering the theater. Yeah. And, you know, people used to sneak into drive-ins in trunks. You see that mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the scene in Greece. You see that when they open it up and, then, and, and people come out of it. Uh, they would charge, you know, you would drive in and you would you would be uh, charged per person. They would say, okay, there's four people in here. And then they would write it out. 150 per person in yeah, this theater. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it really, 
if you've never been to a drive-in before, it's kind of a very antisocial way of watching a movie. I wish we had one. Oh, close they're by. so bad. I would love that. So they would do two. Th- they were, there was two things. At first, they would give you a speaker, and it was outside the car. And then they eventually you could have the speaker and then put it in your car. And then radio it was station. a radio station, um, and you would tune into the radio station. You'd be able to listen. Smart. And but you, when you think about it, there's you know maybe two hundred. There's two hundred people, two hundred fifty people. You know, enjoying this movie, but you're not hearing everybody laugh. You're not hearing everybody jump, or you right. know, or or whatever. If it's a horror movie, it's it's a it's really a strange kind of experience, and it's something that will kind of you know, kind of never really you know happen again. Experience it's very again. stuck in time. It's very stuck in time from the '50s to the '80s, and then yeah. that was it. So the movie Dirt, and Lord knows what the soundtrack was started, and the crowd fell silent because like we've explained people are inside their cars it's texas in the summer their windows are probably open but it's quiet and all you can kind of hear is this murmur of the movie playing inside of everybody's cars but as the movie continued in the dark the ambience was distracted and disrupted by the faint smell of smoke something was burning and the smell in this smoky sort of mist in the air grew a new sound was introduced the crackling of a growing fire so that was that was the sound and that was bringing up and then you start feeling the smell so the smell starts coming up and then you know that the, the quiet because that's still kind of a chill sound that crackling oh, maybe fire. it's the movie yeah. mm-hmm. um but that gets disrupted when a man runs up to the concession stand and tells Betty's son, Roger, the ticket booth is on fire. And obviously, Roger, you know, if anybody says anything's on fire, you're going to freak out. Well, but, his mother's working inside of it. But his mother is it. inside of it. So he starts running towards the booth. And as he gets closer, he sees his mother's brown-paneled 1974 Hornet station wagon. And... Um, I actually had a Hornet when I was a little kid. You did? Well. Yeah. And I think it might've been a 74 as well. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, and there was, so she, he, he, he's getting closer to the booth. He sees the station wagon and he sees this movement inside the car. And as he gets closer, he sees that the movement is, is this man. There's a man inside his mother's car and he's never seen him before. And he gets right up next to the car and he looks inside and he sees his mother's purse on the front seat. And he screams at the guy, what's happening? And the guy just replies to him, I'm looking for someone. And then he just drives away, but he starts driving towards the interior of the drive-in. Towards the screen. And as if he's just going to go watch the movie. So Roger's 15-year-old brain doesn't know how to process what he's seeing. You know, he just saw... The ticket booth on fire, where his mom works. A guy's in his mom's car, and, and the guy, you know, drives away and just says, I'm looking for somebody, and that's it. And he doesn't know how to put, you know... I mean, this would be worse for anybody, much less 15-year-old, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, who was this guy? What, what, what is going on? Where is mom? And a number of people started going around because the flames are started getting higher and higher, go to the booth. They're trying to open the door to the booth, but it was locked, and the door was too hot to the touch to be open manually. So, you know, at the same time, the firefighters and also the police are called. 
So Betty's thoughts couldn't be seen inside the burning ticket booth. So the hope was that she'd already escaped, but the fear was that she was inside and incapacitated. The firefighters get there and the fire is raging. The police also arrive on the scene and tried to wrap their heads around what was going on. Those watching the movie closest to the ticket booth were starting to panic, rightfully so, and those far enough away just continued to watch the movie, oblivious to the confusion that was unfolding on the other side of the lot. So it's a really eerie scene, if you so can picture eerie. this, in sort of rural Texas. And so you have an idea of how large uh, a drive-in is. It's like yeah. a football field. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you have to imagine that the the word of like a crisis spreads the way like a domino falls yeah. where it's like the next car hears and the next car hears if their windows are down and they can, you know, hear yeah. from the next car. And mm-hmm. it's, it's that large of an area that we're talking about. So the police have arrived on the scene and Betty's son, Roger, runs up to these officers. He tells them frantically that his mother, who had been selling tickets inside this ballot ticket booth, was missing. He was worried that she was trapped inside, but he wasn't sure maybe she got out. He also told them about the strange man he saw inside of his mom's car. Obviously, everybody's priority is like, let's focus on this fire. You know, this is a thing. It could kill more people. Maybe there's an explanation for this other thing. And he tells them also that you know, he saw his mom's purse inside the car with this man. This man drove his station wagon towards the screen into the center of this drive-in situation, into the sea of cars of people who are watching the movie. And he parked the cars within them. So he wasn't sure where this car had gone. He gave them a description of not only the car, but also what this man looks like best he could, given the panic and stress and the circumstances he was dealing with. And remember, this is a 15-year-old, so he's doing his best. So meanwhile, as the fire department was getting the blaze under control, the owner of the theater was called to unlock the booth because we're dealing with some stuff here. I mean, this booth is on fire. It's locked. It's made of glass and metal. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you get in this thing? And we were talking about this before we recorded and we were looking at just sort of some of the notes and the police documents. And it's like, why couldn't you bust down the door? Well, maybe it was so, maybe like things were melting. There's like glass, metal, maybe things were sealing shut or I don't know how a key would help you there. Maybe they just didn't, I don't know. Yeah. I can't explain that. It's where the the police report said that they, they, they had to call the owner owner. and the the owner had to come open it up. It's strange. They said that it was too hot to open with a hand or try to bust down. But like, maybe the fear was she, she, she's not in there. Yeah. And so like, we don't need to bust it down. I don't really know. So the owner of the theater, a guy named Howard Hagel, and he was also friends with Betty. He comes, he unlocks the booth. He pushes the door open slowly, and inside, on the floor, was a body. And the face of the person was burned beyond recognition. They can tell it was a female, and she was lying on her back with her feet towards the door, And there was also a lot of debris strewn about the room. There was a folding chair, a swivel chair, a broom, a telephone book, a clipboard. And all of them were just charred and burned up. And while they couldn't see her face, the owner, Howard Hagel, he recognized the stature. It was a petite woman. And she was supposed to be there because that's what she did. And he knew that was Betty Stotts. And by this point, Betty's 15-year-old son had been pulled into the back of a police cruiser to separate him from the scene. 
The last thing that police wanted was for Betty's son to see her that way, especially before learning the news that his mom was no longer alive. So we introduced all the Stotts children and, you know, family to you guys earlier. Ronald, the oldest of the Stotts children, was working at a hotel right down the street as this entire scene was unfolding. Uh, I was working as house cashier in the restaurant of this uh, hotel restaurant chain. And uh, someone came in and mentioned that it appeared like there was a big fire at the drive-in theater. And of course I dropped what I was doing and ran outside to look and you could clearly see the smoke and the fire uh, from from, uh, where I was working the parking lot. And I just took off running. Uh, when I got there, uh, Roger, uh, my baby brother, was in the back seat of a police car, and he was he was kind of frantically waving his hands uh, at me, and, and I could see that the, the the ticket booth was on fire, and I could tell that by the way everyone was reacting and standing that that mom was probably still in there. So I I took off running from the fire, running to the fire and ten on, you know, getting her out. And uh, the fireman tackled me, uh, threw me to the ground and and then wrestled me into the back of the patrol car with Roger. And uh, I guess as the night unfolded, as they, they put out the fire, uh, it, it became evident uh, that that she had died. We had a friend there that, that agreed to uh, take me home. Um, and uh, that's where I had to tell my dad the, the, the night before their 25th wedding anniversary that, that his wife was dead. So the news of what had happened, I mean, at least the preliminary information and facts about what had happened, was slowly moving through the Stotts family. And uh, this friend volunteered, and we drove over to Debbie's house uh, to to tell her what had happened. Roger, in the meantime, was at the police station, and uh, I, I had to tell Debbie the same thing. I heard sirens off in the distance, and I had a foreboding feeling um, that something had happened, but I, you know, how you get that feeling and then you're like, you push it out of your head and go, you're just being silly. I was actually in bed. That's where I was when my brother uh, knocked on the door and and uh, I answered the door and he told me that mom, that something bad had happened to mom. She had been in an accident, he said. And I said, you know, is she okay? And he said, no, she's, she's dead. And uh, my world fell apart. So back at the scene of the fire, law enforcement bit by bit removed the debris from inside the booth that was on top of Betty. They removed Betty and carefully put her in a body bag and transferred her to the morgue in an ambulance. In the area surrounding the scorched ticket booth was roped off and floodlights were installed so that the scene could be examined because, you know, this was like midnight at this point. So inside they could tell that the fire was started in the southwest corner of the booth. The body was in the center of the booth, and everything inside the booth was black, withered, and in piles of ashes, except for one thing. The remarkable thing about the whole incident was that 
the entire building except for the outside structure was totally consumed except for two documents and that's the notebook that uh, Mrs. Stotts had and her Bible. Uh, I've had several people to ask me why these two documents were not damaged any more than they were and I really don't know. I don't have an answer for it. The only thing that I can say personally is that maybe God had some reason for leaving or preserving these items. So Betty's journal is intact. Everything else is burned, but for some reason the journal has survived. And it's bagged, it's taken into evidence as they're processing the scene. So at this point, there are three different scenes that are unfolding at one time. There's one at the fire. At the drive-in. At the drive-in. There's one at the morgue, and there's one at the police station. So we're going to start with what's playing out at the scene of the fire at the drive-in. We know that 15-year-old Roger saw an unknown man sitting in his mother's car as the ticket booth fire started burning. But we don't know how he is connected to the incident. Is he responsible for the fire or is he just an opportunist who saw the chance to steal a car as panic was ensuing all around him? So the police now have the description of Betty's station wagon that they had gotten from her son, Roger. And they actually find it. They go car to car. They're going to search every car until they find this car. And they do. And they find it in this massive sea of cars. When they approach the man who's sitting inside, he's staring straight forward and watching the movie Dirt focused on the screen with this sort of glazed look over on his face. And the officers immediately smell alcohol in him. So when the police approach him, he's asked what he's doing in the car. And he says the car belongs to a woman he met at the concession stand at this very same drive-in. And he then follows it with, you know, I'm just trying to get a little. And uh, he was eventually detained. And when the police went inside of the car, they very quickly spotted Betty's purse that the contents were dumped onto the floor of the passenger's side. They also found a bloody ivory-handled pocket knife, a wad of blood-stained cash that totaled about $600, and some loose change. They also found a set of keys, a red coin purse, and a Lone Star gas receipt. And at this point, the man was brought back to Betty's 15-year-old son, who's sitting in the back of this police cruiser, and he's able to identify him as the man he'd actually seen driving his mother's car. The arrest was made just before midnight. And the man was 29-year-old Randy Walls. Now, while this is happening, let's talk about the scene that's unfolding at the morgue. They begin examining the body of Betty Stotts, and they discover that it was not the fire that killed Betty. She was actually brutally murdered. Betty's cause of death was a combination of a massive fracture to the head, three slashes to the throat, carbon monoxide poisoning, and burns. And she also had defensive wounds on her arms and multiple contusions. And she was beaten with a blunt metal instrument, stabbed and left to die in that blaze that gutted that ticket booth. And this woman, remember, this woman was loved throughout the community. People would go to that drive-in just to, just to talk to her. So who would do this and Why? Uh, I, I don't think that we found out until uh, later that night when we went to the police station. 
my older brother Ron had told me that she was uh, that she was murdered. And of course, you know, the first thing that went through my mind was who would want to do that to her? She was um, really a very gentle person. Uh, I can't, and she was so small. It's like, you know, who would, just who would ever want to do that? If, if someone wanted to rob her, it would be so easy just to kind of hold a hand, hold her with one hand and grab the buddy with the other. That's how small she was. Um, so if you wanted to rob her, there was really no need for violence or or to kill her just take the money and go kind of thing these are things that are going through my head how could that possibly happen and the third scene that was unfolding at the exact same time was at the police station where the stotts family were gathering in light of everything that was happening and remember they're now dealing with not only losing their mom but also finding out that she was brutally murdered and may have still have been alive when she was burned And the police were wrapping their heads around all of the facts in this case. The booth was 10 square feet and was made of metal and glass, and arson investigators could not find any evidence that an accelerant had been used in the fire. The $600 that had been on Randy when he was arrested was actually stolen from the cash box in that ticket booth. So could robbery have been what motivated this terrible crime? Witnesses from that night also gave accounts of what they had seen. And this is crazy. So Randy had actually sold some of them their movie ticket from the booth, which meant that he likely already overpowered her in the booth and was selling tickets in an attempt to avoid drawing attention to him and getting caught. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. It's crazy. So a bunch of people came forward and said, this was obviously after the fact, and said, you know, a guy was sold me my ticket, and I they had asked, like, where's Betty? Or this or that. And he kind of just brushed it off. Like she's not free tonight, this or that, whatever. Filling in. Exactly. And then they started to see smoke, some of them from the back of the booth. And he'd say, you know, no, no, we're just having a short circuit, an electrical problem, which means, and it's so chilling that like Betty was at his feet. Yeah. yeah. Um, in some sort of phase of what had ultimately happened because she was obviously injured in multiple ways, which right. is horrible to imagine. But these people even more so who come to the movie to see her and to know that in hindsight is probably just chilling. So chilling. Yeah. Now, when, when we got to this part of the case, I was just like, yeah, because yeah, I mean, you, you hear about the, it, it's, it's, it's like a movie where uh, I'm sure that there were people that were pulling up and he realized, Oh, I've got to do something. Mm-hmm. And then he just started taking the tickets and yes. how probably awkward he was. So it was not only the fact that Betty wasn't there, who is this guy what is his rap like? Um, you know, does he does he There's know? There's no all way the, he yeah. was cool, calm, and collected. <sighs> no, Jeez. because also it's like exactly like the cars are lining up into the street would cause traffic. Like he's doing this. Like I better do this till the movie starts, right? Because or else I'm going to be caught immediately. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. 
Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. All right, so let's talk about our suspect, Randy Wools. They ask him about the murder and the fire, and he says he doesn't remember. He said he had injected himself at least 40 times with liquid Valium oh. that he had stolen from a vet clinic during a burglary. And, you know, they're, they're throwing these accusations at him. They're saying like, did you murder? Did you set the fire? And he just couldn't remember anything. That's what he's saying. So then he makes two phone calls, one to his wife in Medina, which is a neighboring city about an hour South of Kerrville in the direction of San Antonio. And he asked his wife to call his lawyer, and she's like, no, I'm not calling your lawyer. Not doing it. So he hangs up, and then he says, probably sheepishly, can I make another phone call? He says, yeah. And he actually calls her lawyer. Or calls his lawyer. So I don't know why he couldn't have called his, called his lawyer directly. Probably it'd be whatever. like, heads up, wife. Yeah. Help me help myself. And, and she's like, nah. Yeah. And while they're talking to him, the police can see that there's blood on his clothes. So they take his, his clothes and put it into evidence. He's denied bond and uh, would be kept in jail 
as law enforcement keeps working on the indictment against him. Right. And so they basically do the diligence um, and find out what he had done the day this happened, the hours leading up to this strange fire and this murder. And during the day, he and two other friends hung out at a park all day, drank beer. And at some point they decided to go see the movie. And these two friends, it was a couple with some kids. They had all gone to see this drive-in movie together. I'm not going to get into their names. There's five people. They're not that significant. So excuse me, I'm not going to include them. But they say basically, you know, they all went to this drive-in movie. He drove separately, but they were all watching it together. At some point he wanders off. They never see him again. But they were also meeting a friend there. And the friend they were meeting there, his name is Ron, not to be confused with our first degree Ron, but another Ron. And Ron is interviewed and he basically says that at some point he sees Randy walking towards the entrance of the drive-in holding a tire iron. And he says to him like, dude, where are you going? And he says, well, I'm going to fix my flat tire down the street. And this guy Ron can see just past Randy that his car is parked there. His own car, Randy's car. Mm -hmm. So to his head, he's not going to mess with Randy or provoke Randy or, or question him. He's like, if he says he's going somewhere, who do I, what do I care? But in his head, he thought to himself, like, where is he going with that tire iron? Yeah. And as we know, I mean, there is a blunt instrument involved in this attack, in this murder. So we're putting the pieces together here. I mean, he was walking towards the ticket booth and, um, you know, this is shedding light on what this guy had done before, the how, the means. We haven't even touched on the why because there's nothing that we can see here. Because so far, all he's offered up is Valium. I mean, he didn't know this woman. Um, no motive. No motive. I mean, money. Maybe, yeah. However, though, you know, the, the owner of the theater was interviewed and said, you know, I told Betty over and over, if she's ever held up, give the money. Hand it over. And so she would have done that. So the the violence, the like the cruelty, I mean. Yeah. And it was, it was, it sounds on the face of it overkill violence because yeah, you, you had, you had blunt force trauma and you also had knife trauma as well. And then you, and have then the you burn it. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's what the police were theorizing about what happened that night. So they think that Randy uh, had gotten to the theater, but he was on the prowl to commit a burglary. I want to get some quick cash. He and his friends get to the drive-in. They pay admission to get in. And he probably, when they were paying the admission, he sees Betty. Betty's taking the tickets. She's little. She's little. He's probably doing the math in his head. Look at all those cars out there. 150 per person in each car, blah, 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 blah. He probably had in his head how much money was in there because you can do that. That's one of those things where you can't do that really when you go, unless you're, unless you're watching a, a liquor store or something. Yeah. But you can really figure out how much money cash. is going to be. And this is all it's cash. Like there's 250 yeah. cars. There's two yep. to three people. No one's alone. Like yeah. there's like yeah, five he bucks knew a that car. This was, this was, 600 bucks. Yeah, he, knew there, he knew there was going to be a decent amount of money in there. So... He uh, and sees that, you know what, this could, this could be an easy target, and he zeroes in on her. He gets the tire iron from his own car, and he goes probably behind the ticket booth uh, and then enters it, hits her in the back of the head uh, before she probably even had any time to react. He just didn't even, uh, you know, 
give her the 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 way to to do what the boss told her to do, which was okay. Here, take the money. Right. She never had a chance. He just went right up behind her and hit her. Mm-hmm. So then. Not to cause a stir, and he probably doesn't even realize what the hell he's going to do. He just starts accepting money and handing out tickets to cars that were approaching the booth. He stabs her repeatedly, then sets her on fire, then takes the $600 from the cash register. So then a number of witnesses started reporting seeing the smoke coming from the booth, but Randy, who was pretending to work there, he said that it was just an electrical fuse and it was faulty and no need to worry about anything. Right. So let's talk about his excuse, which was Valium. Yeah. So this veterinary clinic was not super far away from where this happened. So I just looked up like, let's see how reasonable this is. We looked up what Valium could do. And uh, Valium is a benzo. And it's the same as like a Xanax. And they're used to treat anxiety symptoms, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, similar things. And it's like on the spot treatment. Yes. It's if you're in the throes of a panic attack, if you're in you the throes of an anxiety attack, it. you take it, it'll chill you out. Um, but when you think about like the aggression he expressed in this like savage beating, it is not what you'd Expect think of a benzo at all. Exactly. You, it's more of a downer. There's a website called Narconon. And basically they said that there is a possibility that there could be a paradoxal side effect that could take place. And a paradoxal side effect is one that should be um, eliminated by use of the drug, but instead it shows up stronger mm. when the drug is used. For example, with Valium, as is in this case. Yeah, because remember, Valium's just supposed to chill, chill you out. It's the mother's little helper that the Rolling Stones. You literally about. just like yeah. sink into a couch. Yeah, exactly. So, but they're saying basically these effects can include fits of rage or violence, aggression, excitement, irritability, and hostility under you know certain circumstances. And the person may lose control of their impulses, which could lead to antisocial behavior, which is closely associated with, you know, murder, um, especially among the very young and elderly, which our suspect is not fallen. He's 29. Oh, so he's not very young and he's not elderly. And uh, some people may consider suicide or harm against themselves. So, so far, it doesn't seem like a great excuse. Um, but it is possible. And the next thing, I mean, I looked up was memory loss and I have actually a personal story about this, um, where I was having hella panic attacks and hella anxiety attacks. And I was actually out with Jack around this time of year, probably five years ago, Mm -hmm. we went to a bar. Um, there was going to probably be an interaction that was giving me pause, but we decided to go to this bar anyway. And I was like, I'm going to take a little piece of a benzo. I think I had a prescription like a Xanax or something. Took a little piece to take the edge off. I shit you not. I had one glass of wine and all of my friends to this day remember this day as like a day I don't remember. Jack, how would you explain? I mean, you saw me, so I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, you just like weren't there really. And we're just kind of walking around aimlessly, um, not knowing your surroundings whatsoever and just kind of bumbling around. Right. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't a, what's even scary about it. When you're drunken and this messed up, you, you're drunk. You need to be carried. When you have a benzo reaction like this, you can stand and you can compose, but you're like, not there. Yeah. And the next day I woke up in my bed and I'm like, where was I? 
I didn't remember a single thing. Like the group of us were kind of, everyone was super cool about it, but I was mortified because it's like, I don't remember anything a whole night. And I had like one glass of wine and like a piece of a benzo, like, because I was genuinely, truly having like an anxiety attack. It wasn't because I was abusing the medication. It was just like, you're not supposed to drink on these. And I had a glass of wine thinking one glass of wine couldn't possibly do that. Mm -hmm. So all I'm saying here as somebody who's, it was the most terrifying night of my life the next day being like, oh my God, I, if I weren't with well, trusted know, friends. Yeah. You didn't know what you're doing, who you're with. Yeah. If you ended up with the wrong person, then it could have been very detrimental. Yeah. No. Yeah. And remember he was drinking that that day. Of course. A lot. So a that's, lot. that's what I'm saying. I don't believe they're for his first one. I believe a second one. Mm-hmm. I believe he was bad. I think he's a bad man. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't remember. Mm-hmm. You can be half right. So anyways, Law enforcement at this time, they are building their case against this murderer. They truly believe he had done this. It was robbery was the motive. You know, the cruelty on top of it was just who he is. And there are two sides to every tragedy. There's the sort of mechanical machine, which is law enforcement and the judicial process. And we also have on the other side of tragedy is the family. They're miserable. Luckily, it's a big family. They have each other. and. Luckily, again, it's a small community. They're feeling the support of the people in this town as the news of Betty's murder spread. My dad, um, he never got over it. He, he grieved every single day for the rest of his life, which is only two more years is, uh, is all he lived. But uh, he, he, was, he was devastated. This happened the day before their 25th wedding anniversary. He, he, ne- he was just never the same. Um, none of us were. She was the center of our family. And, uh, and suddenly we were, we were left without the center of our family. And so we collapsed, to be honest with you, several of us. The Stotts family was forced into this new reality and they were forced into the mourning process and the grieving process almost immediately because it was a revolving door of people wanting to show them an outpouring of support on the heels of such a horrific event. You know, it was a smaller community and uh, it was also during that time in the world where uh, really what people did most was bring casseroles. So for the next two days, I mean, we had constant flow of people with condolences and, and, and casseroles in the community. That's, that's how you attempted to uh, console people uh, when there was a death. It hadn't quite sunk into an emotional level. We, we were just raw. And I remember, I think it was about the second day, uh, the, the constant people coming and the constant condolences had really just gotten to me and I kind of sequestered myself in a little room uh, off to the, the side of the house uh, to just kind of get away from it for a little bit, take a breather. Uh, I remember sitting on the bed playing uh, guitar that would only produce minor chords and uh, just, you know, kind of really feeling sorry for myself. And that's when I... And, 
let me say this. I, I know that um, you guys are not great believers in the supernatural or the occult. So I'm just going to tell this part as it actually happened to me, and y'all can get it wherever you want. Then I will tell you that I was sitting in this room, and uh, I, I heard my mother's voice as clear as a bell. And, and I don't know how to explain this, except that I I was not hearing her voice with my ears. It was as if it was appearing in my in, in my head. Uh, but, but I certainly recognized it as her voice. And uh, she said, Ron, I have something for you. Let me help you find it. And I remember being almost magnetically drawn to this little bureau, this little filing cabinet uh, that, that, you know, I don't remember ever going into. And uh, I remember reaching for the top door. And I remember her saying, no, not that one, the next one. And I uh, opened that one, and underneath some old newspapers were the letters that she had left uh, each member of our immediate family. Our names were, were on each envelope, yes. Uh, I read mine uh, immediately. And as Ron read this letter from his mother, the significance of what these letters were really started to sink in. They were essentially farewells that had been written within days prior to her murder. And Betty knew, had this intuition that something was going to happen to her. And there is really no explanation for this. So this is a crazy development. And I don't know how you explain this sort of thing. But if we listen or think back to the beginning of the episode, when they talked about their mom's just open-mindedness to all religions. She's got this incredible ability to open people up. She's got this, what sounds like just intuition. And sometimes things like this just can't be explained. You know, there's... You have a hard time thinking that your mother knew she was going to die and she was putting these messages out there and then she was telling you from beyond the grave. Um, I'm I'm typically not a believer, but I am a believer that things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those deals where, you know, I've seen the way that the planets line up sometimes and something would not have been able to happen if not for all of these dominoes falling. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about that in uh, for another completely unrelated story where it's like certain pieces have to line up exactly correctly for something to fall the way that it does. And it's like, there's only so much coincidence that can happen without you kind of questioning or believing in something like a little bit bigger. And that's the thing. It's like, she put, I mean, these weren't just letters in a diary. They were in envelopes with everybody's name on them, like as if you did like a planned euthanasia. Like it was very reminiscent of that sort of thing. And um, I I truly believe always when I'm confronted with something this compelling, my uh, reaction to that is to say, I know for sure that X, Y, or Z doesn't exist would be really arrogant. 
And the thing about humans, I think that we're very flawed. It's like, we believe we know things for sure. Well, that's it's, it's just as ignorant to believe that, you know, something than to believe that you don't. Cause how else do you explain this sort of thing? Right. And that's the thing. Like we say, when we're trying to convict someone, coincidence is not possible. And then in cases like this, we say like, it must be a coincidence. Well, which is it? Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and, yeah. and also you want to believe, especially when you've, when you've had such a traumatic event like this and you want to believe. And I remember my mother who's, who's pretty damn cynical when my father died, like going to a psychic Yeah, and this, and you know, she was just like talking about that. She would never have done that in a million years. But then, but the craziest thing with this though, is like, you know, doing the psychic thing. It's like, you're almost grasping at straws where something like this kind of just fell into this family's lap and presented itself to them. Well, and the craziest thing would be that there's another coincidence And this crazy coincidence has to do with Betty's journal that ended up surviving in the fire. In one of her most recent journal entries, she wrote the following. She says, the burning and cutting of oneself for natural self is sorrow. And when it's all gone, the higher self is left. And then her very last journal entry that she wrote read, this is the last I shall write to express myself. And we have touched on briefly the fact that this case was getting a lot of media coverage, but it got so much, in fact, that the show, the 1980s reality show called That's Incredible, which was on ABC from 1980 to 1984, took notice of this story and did a segment on Betty's story. And the kind of stories they generally covered were sort of in the vein of Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh and featured people performing stunts and reenactments of alleged paranormal events. And our first degrees happen to have a clip of that show. And our first degrees, Debbie and Ron also did interviews for this show. So I want to play a portion of that clip for you right now. Betty Stotts was murdered. Strangely enough, an accurate prediction on that murder was made several days before the crime was committed by the victim herself, Betty Stotts. Here is that incredible story. Police arrived at the scene of the murder within minutes after the crime. Betty Stotts was dead, murdered in the very ticket booth that had been such a happy haven for her. My mom knew that she was going to die in the box office. I think that she knew that she was going to die a very brutal her job at the box office because the box office was the place where she felt most spiritual. It was where she went to do her writings. Even in the daytime when she was off work, that's where she would go to meditate. And she didn't want to give that up. And she wasn't afraid to die. And so there was no reason to give that up. Betty's diary found in the burned out ticket booth seemed to document her feeling that death was near. After we read the writings, we knew exactly how she was feeling. And we also knew that she had the premonition because of the things that she did write. The burning and the cutting of oneself, our natural self, is sorrow. And when it's all gone, the higher self is left. A month before she died, she'd speak of, you know, Debbie, if I die, I would like to have a closed casket funeral. I, I, I don't want people crying at my funeral and she went into detail about how she wanted her funeral which at the time I never thought about but I believe that she was preparing us for this wow 
have goosebumps. Mm-hmm. It's chilling. I've never heard of anything like this. Yeah. No, and oh my gosh, it's written so poetic. And we have it's two prong where it's like the letters mm-hmm. and. We heard the clip in the beginning where the police said, as he's holding the journal, there's no reason this should have have it survived survive this fire. It's crazy. No, it's, a journal's literally yeah. paper. paper. It's made yeah. to burn. And and I could see potentially the notes to to the husband and the children. Maybe she was writing that for the anniversary and something along those lines. She's she's feeling feeling that. But this and that journal entry with the burning and saying that this is going to be the last time uh, to express myself. That's crazy. Yeah. Not to mention, this was not, I mean, there were no murders in this area. It's not like you're anticipating a, you know, she'd also had, a, I think, anticipations, premonitions. I don't know what you call them, um, that she would die a violent death. And it's like, this was not a place conducive to violence. Yeah, she didn't live in a dangerous neighborhood. Yeah, it would be just so unheard of where people would probably be like, why? How? No. And then you hear the story and it's just it's it's unbelievable now remember this is a case that had a incredible component to it because she had left these letters um that seemed like they were goodbye letters to all the members of her family she also had this journal where it seems like she had a premonition uh that she was going to die and even how she would die so the media jumps on that aspect of the story and runs with it. But with all that coverage comes implications. Remember how we talked about in the beginning, this community is very religious and very conservative. Uh, there were, of course, the people that were very close to mom and who mom had given help and guidance to. Uh, but we also lived in a community that had some very um, staunch religious people who were pretty hateful in, in their belief systems, made remarks about the fact that um, uh, she got what she deserved because she was a witch and witches burned, uh, those types of statements. Um, we, we got a lot of that, too. So what Ron is saying here is because Betty sort of had her own way of practicing religion, you know, she would read tarot cards and tea leaves and she was more open to many types of religions and spirituality. And she sort of applied all of these things to a religion that she lived by. Uh, The really staunchly religious people took issue with that and said really horrible horrible things after her horrible, tragic, senseless murder. And I just think that's disgusting. And it's awful that on top of having to lose Betty in such an awful way, they had to deal with the cruelty of members of their own community. There are things in this case that can't be explained. And I'm super open to the fact that there are things that just we don't understand. Um, this is very real to this family and it happened. These letters were found. This was the journal entry. If you want to be a skeptic and chalk it up to coincidence, that's your prerogative. If you want to be more open-minded about it and talk about the possibility. I mean, this woman was described as like very religious, very spiritual in touch with herself. Intuition's a real thing. I'm not uh, opposed to anything being possible in this case. What about you guys? No. Uh... <laughs> 
it's one of those things where it's just too, you don't want to even call it weird because you don't want to disrespect it by calling it weird. Too specific. It's just incredibly just specific. So coincidental. You know, and I think the letters to the family, that is one thing that you could, that you can talk away. But, I don't know, man. I've never written letters of my fam- to my family. I know. Tucked away in like perfect little envelopes with everyone's name on it. Mm-hmm. And then, no, let's talk about also. I think we need he, to. He found them. Yeah. He wasn't in his own room. He didn't live yeah. at home anymore. And he was like, yeah. He was drawn to this certain this, drawer. This space. And there's not only that. I mean, uh, Debbie mentioned earlier, we haven't talked about this yet, that her mother tried to talk to her about her affairs like listen i'm not always going to be around and debbie said you know i shut it down because i was 20 and i wasn't trying to hear it like yeah. it's too depressing and as people you know um our parents are still alive your mom is still alive billy it's very scary no matter what age you are to be like hear your parent talk about their death yeah. so i understand at 20 shutting it down yeah being like that's so far from now mom i mean betty was 43 you don't think that's around the corner. No. But Betty had this weird feeling that it was. Yeah. And Betty was laid to rest at a service that was attended to by over 200 people, which speaks to how much she was loved. And the letters from Betty were read at her service. And standing before a closed gray steel coffin, our first degree Ron read portions of her messages. In one of the notes, she described life as, quote, a song played on a piano. If played well, what a beautiful melody. She also said, my world does not make me, rather, I make my world. And lastly, she said, by happy, fear not death or life. So Betty was now laid to rest, and the family, though, would never be the same. When you find out that one of your, someone you love is murdered in such a very violent way there really isn't anything that's going to comfort you because all you want to do all you can think about is okay this person is gone but they also suffered and when you when you think about one of your loved ones suffering in such even if it's just a short period of time that they suffered it doesn't really matter you you think about their fear you know you just want to take that from them and uh, and that was the thing that I struggled with the most. And it's no surprise that this tragedy hit every single member of the Stotts family very hard, like a punch in the gut. But Roger, the youngest Stotts child, working at the drive-in with his mother that night, was hit particularly hard with the implications of what he had been through. Uh, Roger, of course, was the youngest. Uh, and, and I have to say that uh, it, it had long and lasting uh, impact, I believe, on him. Uh, he, he had the most uh, eyewitness experience to the whole deal. Uh, and uh, because he was the baby of the family and still living at home, uh, he and mom were were like really, really, really close. You know, the the rest of us, uh, Debbie had moved out. I had moved out. Uh, and her and Roger were kind of, you know, the last straggler. So they were very, very close. So it hit Roger extremely hard. And, you know, I, I personally believe that, that it had a long and lasting impact on his life. 
So who was this guy who basically destroyed this family? So Randy Wolves was a former Medina construction worker who had a series of previous convictions. And every time, the same thing over and over, he blamed drugs for all of his prison sentences, all of his infractions, all of his crimes. So he claimed to be a ninth grade dropout, said he was introduced to drugs at age 13. However, once he was lawyered up, his lawyer, I mean, they held a press release, a press conference and said, you know, Randy's problems started much earlier than his drug use at 13. He said, even as a child, Randy was caught torturing animals. You know, he had a criminal past. He never showed any emotion or guilt for the things he had done. He was also, you know, a racist, a bigot. He had tattoos of hate symbols, of violence. He had scarred arms from years of drug use. And uh, at the same time, I mean, he was a 29-year-old murderer when this had happened. He had a wife named Lisa. I could not find anything about that relationship. I could not find anything about his parents. I could not find anything about the climate in which he was raised. raised. Yeah, He had been in jail three other times. Mm-hmm. So this is not one of those situations where you're having this like fluke memory loss, fluke aggression triggered by drugs. Deviance is in there inherently. Yeah. And his lawyer is bringing up one of the triad of serial killers, which is... Listen, you could have one. You could have one and it doesn't mean anything. Well, he just set a fire too. So arson is the second one. He's not a bedwetter. Bedwetter is the third one. So we don't know that. Yeah, You don't know anything about his childhood. We don't. Bedwetting doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. No, it does not. But if you match it with the other two... You might want to call I mean, and the worst, the most glaring of all those is he never showed remorse. Yeah. Yeah. So even as a child. Sure. So he's charged with robbery, burglary, arson, and capital murder, and he enters a plea of not guilty. And his his defense was that, in his own words, that he flipped out on drugs. He said he didn't remember a single thing. He had no memory of doing it and no idea why he would have done it, saying only, quote, I was out of my mind. And by the time Randy's trial had approached, the case had attracted so much publicity that there ended up being a change in venue for the trial. And he's found guilty at trial and sentenced to death. And after his sentence is handed down, he says, quote, I guess it's showtime. So if you're a true crime lover, as you know, as it is with death penalty sentences, um, there's an automatic appeals process. But his particular appeal argument was as follows. And these are his own words verbatim. He said, I'm being executed for a crime I can't remember committing. I was flipped out on drugs. I don't know what's supposed to be done with me. I don't know whether I deserve a life sentence. I feel death is a little severe for something that was a mistake. They said I beat this woman down with a tire tool, cut her throat, and then I piled everything in the booth on top of her and set her on fire. Then while this booth is on fire, I'm sitting there selling tickets to people coming into the show. Then I get into the car, drive inside the show, and I'm sitting inside the show in her car when the cops get there. It's obvious I was out of my mind. And I think this is actually an interesting point to have the conversation because it's like, is that valid? That doesn't sound like someone trying to get away with something. That's for sure. No. Well, there's obviously a level of violence yeah. that is inside. No, it's him. inside of him, and, what and it exists. Yeah. And something like that, like exacerbates that 
darkness that's in him. Yeah. Randy Lynn Wool's execution was scheduled for August 20th, 1986. He was 36 years old and he had been 29 when he committed the murder of Betty. Randy was taken by the van 15 miles from the Texas Department of Corrections Ellis unit to the department's walls unit, which houses the death chamber. He was described as somewhat nervous, and he ordered a final meal of two cheeseburgers, french fries, and iced tea. During his last hours, he wrote letters to friends and phoned his grandfather. And he asked two of his cousins to witness the execution, and he was walked into the chamber and strapped down to the table. And so they start the execution. But after years of drug abuse, his veins were so collapsed that the executioners were struggling to find a vein. They were struggling to find a place that they, where they could inject him. And in a moment that is, you know, a little strange, he actually shows them. And he, he points to the vein and the way to enter the vein, and he says, look, this is where you go. Well, he motions, because he's yeah, tied down. Of his yeah, head, yeah. And he's like, hey, guys, right this here. angle Th- here. This is it. And he says, like, this is the, that's where you can find the vein. And he basically is, you know, after them fumbling around for 10 minutes, he's telling them, this is how you can kill me. And we've covered a couple executions here, but they're highly practiced. They're highly rehearsed. They rehearse with the very death row inmate. Um, there's not supposed to be a hiccup lest you attract attention of people, anti-death penalty protesters, mm-hmm. because if anything goes wrong, if anyone sees suffering, if anyone sees anything uncomfortable, emo- overly emotional, other than like a final statement, it could really cause a stir. And as we know, death penalty is like a point of contention or in point of sort of like ethics when we see politicians and people running, like it comes up a lot. This came up. If you Google this guy's name, everything is about this. Yeah. People did not want to see. This is not the narrative that Texas was trying to play. Compassion. This is how you can get to my vein. This is not good. Yeah. This is not good that like this guy was guiding the executioner into the right vein. Even though he deserves it, yeah. and I'm not saying he doesn't, um, but it just it it pulls on people's heartstrings because well, they get they well, get it, very it humanizes him. Yeah, it humanizes him, but it also shows incompetence on their part. For sure, and it's like, but but it brings up a great a great point where Absolutely. it's like incompetent people who don't want to be performing executions because it's of the ethical yeah. implications. They don't want to, but it's like, they have to, you know, they're, they work at the prison. They're like, we have to, I'm not a doctor. It's I got to find a vein. So crazy. It's a nightmare. They feel bad for him. And that's not the point. Yeah. There is something ironic that can be observed though, when we're talking about this execution by lethal injection, a person who uses a defense, I injected Valium into my arm and that's why I committed this brutal, attack on this woman who didn't deserve it. It's very ironic that um, there was needle eased into his arm that caused the end to his life. He's a man who injected things into his arms his entire life and caused pain every time he did and broke the law every time he did. And uh, the executioners did eventually, with Randy's help, find a spot on his drug-scarred arms to make an injection that would get into his veins. And the injections were made near a tattoo of a buzzard grasping a syringe on his right arm. 
and pictures of the Grim Reaper and a swastika on his left arm. So his last words were as follows. I'd like to say goodbye to my family. I love all of them. I'm sorry for the victim and her family. I wish there was something I could do to make it all right. Swastika, Grim Reaper. I mean, it's hard to feel bad for this guy. I don't. No, fuck no. I don't. And it's like, what a senseless, sick thing to do for $600. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am closer to my brothers now than probably most people are because of that experience. Uh, we, we always had each other's back. We were always very, very close. And we were raised in an atmosphere where you could have an opinion that differed from someone else's without having to argue whether you were wrong or right. And, and that gives a person a lot of um, intellectual leeway. So I would say, yes, we became closer. And we kind of suffered through several years together of processing uh, all that had happened and processing the loss. Uh, And especially after Dad died, we were all we had. And how do Ron and Debbie feel about the execution? Uh, I got to say, I was kind of ambivalent, Um, mostly because of, of... Mom appearing to me that that time and telling me that I need to forgive and let this serve its course. Uh, I I also had a personal belief that um, you can forgive people, uh, but that doesn't do away with the fact that uh, everything you do has consequences. And, you know, sometimes you need to pay for your sins in some way or another in order to help you to the next step. Some sick bastard <laughs> decided, made a bad decision, you know? He made a bad decision and, and it affected so many people. And I remember going to the police station that evening going, in fact, I asked them, please let me talk to him. I really wanted to tell him how bad he messed up. I think you have to take responsibility for your own behavior. Um, I have uh, long since forgiven him. I hope that at some point his soul can find the peace that he needs. Betty Stotts taught forgiveness to her children and taught open-mindedness. And I just think it's incredible that they carry on that legacy for her. And here, uh, so many decades later, She's encouraging us in many ways to have an open mind about what we've heard today. And it's one of the most compelling arguments for the unexplained that I've ever heard. So I'm grateful to Betty. I'm grateful to her kids, Ron and Debbie. Thank you. So what did we learn today? So, you know, this has kind of been a debate throughout this episode where, you know, Randy was claiming that he didn't know what was happening because he was on all these drugs and that's why he did it. And it wasn't really him. But at the end of the day, there are some people that have evil living within themselves. And there are some people that don't, and just taking a drug is not going to make you commit a gruesome, gruesome fucking murder. And you see that with, with alcohol too, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like if somebody gets ridiculously you know aggro when they're on alcohol there's something within that 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 happens you know Mm -hmm. so it um 
it doesn't come from out of nowhere. It's it's unlocking a door inside of you. You know, it's it's inside of you. Mm-hmm. And if you take a substance, if you if you drink too much and you get too aggro or you get, you know, you get quiet or you get introspective, that's you know, you're you're opening that door pretend, you know, you don't want to always say that that's your true self. But it's a part of you. But it's a part of you and it was in you. And most people are not going to go and kill people. No. And this guy, you know, he if if it was the the Valium, the Valium basically was the key to opening that door to that evil part of him that was, I'm not just going to rob somebody right now. I'm going to obliterate her. Yeah. Okay, so this story was obviously from 1979. That's 40 years ago. And there's, you know, it it's a story that is so unbelievable that it needs to be told. And we feel very honored that we are able to tell it on our podcast. Um this is the reason why we do this, um, and no story is too small or insignificant to us. So if you guys are one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us. Hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Um, while you're at it, please follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Johnson, at Jack Vanek. And go give us a five-star review. We're still giving away some first-degree merch. And join our Facebook group. Search the first degree, and we're... Talking about all kinds of stuff in there. All the things. All the things. So, until next week, remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But But not not that that close. And remember to stick around because we're going to kill some time. Cut up your credit card deck. Cut up your credit card. Slash go shopping. Capitalism. Bye, Izzy. Merry Christmas. Bye forever. All right. Well, welcome to Killing Time. You're not killing time. <laughs> I was just looking I'm, at it. Like, they're all against me on this one, so I was going to try to stay in my lane, but uh, Jack gave me the window. I, I gave yeah. you the open. You um, Thank you. So <clears throat> I've been looking up, like, different topics that we should do. Oh, wait. By the way, we have a special guest, Jared, here. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi. Jared. Hi, Jared. Great to be back. This really is the crew. Long-time listener. Long-time listener. <laughs> first, <laughs> first or second-time caller. First, second-time host. Second-time yeah. guest. But doesn't... doesn't the crew feels incomplete without him, without Jerry. Well, because Jerry is our sound designer on the podcast. Like, and honestly in episodes, you really shined in our OJ series. I think like Mm -hmm. given, yeah, I mean, you are the fourth piece of the puzzle. You're the the fourth first. You guys really just give me, you give me the good stuff. So yeah, we do, but we'd be nothing, but our podcast sucked before you. It did. Just look at, look at our only bad reviews. (laughs) They're all great now, but our sound was suffering before you. It was suffering. I will take full credit for that. You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, we, we need you as you should. (laughs) Okay. So we were, I've been researching topics to talk about, but Today, we need to recap the most epic day of our lives that happened yesterday. The best day. The four of us were together. We did All day. Th- we did three 
really epic things back jam back. Ba- jam packed into a Sunday afternoon the marathon. Yeah, it wasn't because mar- usually. You know, everybody works so hard that it's hard to even get anybody together to do one thing ever as yeah. friends, let mm-hmm. alone three. Yes. Honestly, it was because we knew in advance. I stayed home Friday and Saturday to work yep. and plan so that I could have all day Sunday. Yeah. And I didn't go out on Saturday night. I played you hockey. I played, you stayed home too. I played hockey Sunday and morning and then I was uh, I was ready to go. That's I came you... out here for that day. You did come here. Well, no, you didn't. Saturday you... well, night too. And the day before. But... Yeah. Jared and I went out on Saturday and I was hungover. Yesterday. I was uh, going to be your stand-in. I know. If you didn't come. I know. I wasn't going to let that happen even though I love you. I mean, I could steal her from you. So. <laughs> I, I also know that. Jacqueline and I have history, okay? We do have history. But I actually don't know whose history is longer. We need um, to do a deep dive and Definitely longer, Jerry. But more concentrated would be me. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You were a better friend for longer. Well, we lived in the same friend. home. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right with all the rats all right, and all fine. the misery in Hollywood. <laughs> okay. Anyways, let's Sorry. talk about our day. Yeah. First thing on the list from yesterday was Tom's one hour photo. We love you, Tom. If you guys are f- fans of Casey Musgraves, you probably saw this post that she went and like took photos at this one hour photo. Little hole in the wall place in Koreatown. This guy, Tom, owns it. He is the cutest little man that I've ever seen in my life. We go into a little back room. And he has all these different backdrops that are like beautiful clouds, bunnies, rainbows, Rainbows. like beautiful trees. And then you go and he poses you. You can't pose yourself. No, no, no. no. He's an an artist. No. (laughs) Alexis yelled at me. Yeah, Alexis is like, can we do this? I was like, Alexis, do you think he's going to come to your podcast and tell you how to talk about murder? That's true. (laughs) And I was like, okay, Billy, it's not the same, but all right. All I asked was if I could hold the parasol over my head. (laughs) You can't, you can't hold the parasol until tom gives you the parasol i know i learned that now so he was posing us our pictures are epic epic it's funny because he doesn't know our dynamic and we didn't tell him so he was just putting us he felt it like i'm hugging billy in one or like (laughs) just like like, it's me and lex like no jerry was like holding me like embrace like are you was that you and i think it was actually jack who tickled me but it was really i thought it was jerry because he was caressing i was just going with it because he seemed like a master but then the best part at the end I asked Tom, I'm like, Tom, can you just get one of me and me and him? And I point to Jared and then we're like posing. He's, he goes, oh, friends. <laughs> I was like, nope. <laughs> yeah. I but think other thought things. me and Jared were together. Probably. Yeah. Because yeah. he was always putting you guys together. Yeah. yeah. That was funny. Was a good time. <laughs> so anyways, check. We're going to be releasing those on Instagram. It's Slowly. Gonna be, and you Slowly, know what? We yes. might we might collab with Tom later. Yes. There might be some future collabs with Tom. He doesn't know he's collabing with us, but we're just going to no. go into Tom's one hour photo it's a bunch like of saying, other times. It's like saying, yeah, we're going to collab with Rick Rubin and, you know, something yeah. or something. It's just like, yeah, he doesn't know yet, but totally. when me and Jay-Z go to the studio. Yeah. You mean Rick gonna, Ross? No. Rick I don't know who Rick Rubin is. Oh, oh my God! Come on. It, do you mean Rick Ross? No, Rick no. Rubin, the guy that did Beastie Boys, the guy that did like everything. And it's okay. It's Rick behind Ross. the scenes stuff. Jo- yeah, Johnny Cash is hurt. Okay. Anyways, so <laughs> <laughs> do I look like I'm made out of time for these things <laughs> to have all this? I'll, I'll make you a play- yeah. I'll make you a playlist. Oh okay. my God! Okay. Ninety nine problems. He was the producer behind that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, so. <laughs> We'll be collabing with Tom from Tom's one hour photo soon. And it's going to be amazing. Okay. Second act of yesterday was this place called house of creep thought it was a haunted house. 
was not a haunted house. No, it was like foreplay haunted house. It was very sexual. I got someone put a leash on me and dragged <laughs> me around. Yeah. Yeah, that's, they did. We I saw mean, that. Out of context, that sounds insane, but that's literally what happened to you. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> you guys were all like staring and smiling at me. I'm like, okay, bye, everybody. And yeah. then I got, you know, dragged around. And then she told me a story about how she killed her roommate. And I was like, oh my God. She killed her roommate because she loved her hair. Uh, yeah. yeah. She, but the, we don't, I don't know. Let's not give it away just in case. But okay, they're not going to go. Well, you don't know. Anyways, However, you should go. If you the really odds are that this exact thing will happen to you is slow, like slim. So all I'm saying is, though, this wig this woman was wearing was similar to my hair. So she was like, told me this crazy story about how she was obsessed with her roommate's hair and killed her and stole her hair. And then she took her wig off and she was bald and she was a dominatrix. And then she let me go. But first she put you into a... She put me into a creepy closet room and told yeah, me a story so. and whispered it into my ear like her lips were touching my ear. There were a lot of whispering that was like that. There was lots of... See, this is what was interesting about House of Creep is we're so used to... Personal space? Well, no. With haunted houses now, like nobody touches you. Mm-hmm. Like, so the touch part of House of Creep was very weird because people were touching your face. They're like getting in your ear. Like it was very invasive and yeah. creepy. And it's also, I, I loved, I mean, one of the things that I love is because it had very, if you've ever been in New York and you've gotten to sleep no more, it had, it had those vibes. And I love the fact that everybody, I was trying to figure out why I liked it. And then I realized nobody has their cameras out. Yeah. You know, and oh, people yeah. are living in the moment. And there were so many times like in your brain, I'm sure we were all thinking, it was like, oh, let's take a picture. Oh, no, we can't. Yeah. Let's I actually oh, asked no. yeah. you and Jared and you both said, do not. Yeah. I was like, oh, I don't want to be soloed out for that. Please. Like, just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't. No, but it, that, was, it was just true. very cool that you're just kind of living in the moment and everybody's experiencing this thing. And there are all these these actors that are around you that are that are immersing you into this you know, work of art. And it really was kind of like a... Inst- you know, kind of like an Instagram pop-up museum that has gone completely wrong. Wrong, yeah. And there was murder in it. Yeah. And, and they were, yeah. the actors were so committed. Like, so you, committed. Dude, that insane guy who kept coming up to me, who was like shirtless with the braids. Do you yeah. remember that yeah. guy? Mm-hmm. Who was like a deranged psycho killer. Well, this is my favorite part of this Nobody's going to even understand what House of Creep is. You just right. have to go. It's like an immersive experience. Experience. Um, but the best part was there was a couple of people we couldn't figure out if they were actors or not, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that was the coolest because I'm like, what is this? It's like yeah. this you guy's just off, but he's not being crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell if he's just a weirdo or if he's actually part of this whole thing. So it's like you're kind of questioning reality. It was kind of cool. Yeah, and then he like ends up behind you, and you're like super paranoid because he, he, you think you walked in with him. Yeah. yeah, I know the guy you're talking about. Yeah. And the guy was, with the accent, with the British accent. No, this or, guy was kind of like a biker guy. He what, didn't yeah. have like a South African. The guy African? with the British accent no, lived the, there, uh, worked there. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was yeah. an actor. Yeah. But he but said he, that he didn't. So no, no, of he course. He's like, oh, it's my he first time here. And I mean, and he, yeah. yeah, he was yeah. wearing the crazy earrings. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, what was it? Um, then we, then we, Billy. <laughs> it oh, was your idea. After that, yes, we went to karaoke. In Koreatown. At a place called Pharaoh's. At a place called Pharaoh's. Highly recommend. recommend. Oh, Best yeah. service I've ever had. We got a private room at Pharaoh's. 
Uh, the song selection was not necessarily. It was uh, vast. It was okay. Vast. So we got we oh. pay, we we rented a dongle. <laughs> I hate that word. For ten dollars. We rented a dongle for ten dollars and then plugged in our iPhone and then also sang some songs as well. What were the songs that we sang? Okay, so I have to say the one of the best karaoke experiences that I've ever had in my life was last night, <laughs> and it was when we all collectively sang. Wait, was it ever Eve Inside Six? Inside Out by Eve Six. Eve Six, uh-huh. Inside Out, which, by the way, underrated karaoke song. Incredible! It's a fucking yeah. awesome song, and it's good for people that don't have good voices, aka the three out of four of us. <laughs> Excuse me. Voice. <laughs> Alexis, your voice might be worse than mine, which is Fuck. so hard. I'm yeah. somewhere you below know what? both of you. No, so. you actually have it. Jared has a good voice for country music. You can't nudge, be good nudge. at everything, Jacqueline, and we're good at a lot of things. And yeah, exactly. Singing this is not a thing. Rapping, yeah. no, Jacqueline I, oh, and I can do. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> they did. Uh, <laughs> Alexis surprised me. What? Which one? Which forgot one? About, forgot, forgot about, Dre. about Dre. I noticed it, I was being good. I was really good at it because Billy was just like... No, I, I kind of like... It was a jaw-dropping moment, yeah. Because I was like, I'm out of breath because I'm so fast and so good at this. And yeah. I knew mm-hmm. every word because I'd done that as a karaoke song before. That was good. Did it you was, two... Did you up? duet on that one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I knew... I knew she was good at it because that's my song. <laughs> like that's if I'm going for something, I want to impress people. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh shit, she's keeping up like big time. It's she a was good like, song. Dude, speaking of going fast in a karaoke song, I tried to do Bare Naked, Naked Ladies <laughs> one week, which is my ultimate karaoke song, and I still fucked it up. Jack, you I'm could never gonna get it. that. I've practiced. You, can, I can't. The lyrics are so hard, They're you will so never fast. understand it. They I don't even know how to forward themselves. It's that, it's like that they, one. It's that one. Pl- I know the place that you're talking about. It's. You know? It's chicken to China Chinese chicken and uh, easy. that one's yes, fine. You're easy. fine. That's but, like yeah. easy alliteration. Yeah. Nothing repeats. There's no nothing it repeats. Just changes Every as the chorus song goes. is yeah. different, which is and it's all so fast. Except, and how can I find it? I think funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. one hard repeats. Smile, though I feel bad. I'm like, oh, laughs at a funeral. Sorry. Yeah. We don't want to pay royalties. No. Bare naked ladies. Yeah. And then and then I brought the room down. Oh yeah. We need to talk to Billy about his karaoke song choices. No, he's trying to be sad inside it is okay so we're going like lincoln park eve six dr dre eagle eye cherry eagle Save eye. tonight. we never did that yes we did we did it was the first one we did oh Anyways, right you I, guys remember eagle eye cherry i have no recollection Save of that. tonight are you guys insane <laughs> you and me did it jack i don't remember you don't remember, eagle Do remember? Eye cherry? i think i remember it yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay hate that. i remember I this. I hate that you this. still don't no that's weird because you weren't the even night drunk. took so many turns no. that I didn't remember where we started. Yeah, that was the first thing that happened. Okay, so then we did that. And then, Billy, I still don't even know what songs you did because they were so obscure and slow and sad. All right, I did, um, <laughs> I did Whiskey and You by Chris Stapleton. Okay. And I did... Uh, uh, maybe it's time by uh, by Bradley Cooper Ooh. from the oh yeah you guys did do a duet and we did and then the we did the duet stars born duet so and I was like I'm a baritone and you guys thought that was so funny <laughs> yeah. but it's true when I say you are a baritone I'm like as long as I can if I can be low I can match the pitch yeah. high mm-hmm. is where I fuck up yeah no you gotta find, <laughs> you just gotta, you gotta know your songs. register you know, you got, exactly no songs that you that truly you, can sing, you know in my gift of song. Baritone is my gift. That is. Setting mm-hmm. up our... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we can't say we suck totally. Yeah. I 
Listen, Alexis and I have a little no, secret you project. Are, you guys are really good at, at rapping. So. I know, and I'm rap. Baritone notes I can nail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my God. By the way, the daggers that Alexis is just <laughs> stabbing. Jacqueline, is, Jacqueline is a great singer. That is a fucking Jacqueline? lie. <laughs> this is bad publicity for our project. This is a lie. Let's just say yeah. she's got heart. She I does do. passion can carry you know what? art. Bob, I have a good heart. That's, Bob Dylan wasn't a great singer. Neither is wasn't. I'm sorry, Madonna, but Madonna. Ooh. Isn't Bob Dylan still Britney alive? Spears? Yeah, he's still alive. Yeah. He still he's wasn't still a great, a he wasn't singer, a great singer. Yeah. Who? I'm not a Bob Dylan. Bob guy. Dylan fan? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Mr. Tambourine. Oh yeah. my By the way, <laughs> what is that? So, tambourine is kind of a, you know, is that we what you played really want to ask? Night. I know we had tambourines last night. Well, yeah. you know what? I realized that I'm a pretty good tambourine player last uh-huh. night. You right, guys, Jared? You, was yeah. impressed. you yeah. guys did the cutest video. I was like, you dorks. Oh, yeah. yeah what was that song that we sang? Jared? Oh, I did uh, Friends in Low Places. You did Garth yeah. Brooks. Yeah, we, right? we did a duet. Oh, we did, yeah. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was fun. Yeah. yeah, I'm waiting for a, a one with a uh, a triangle because that's the that's the ultimate. Okay, yeah, well, super hot a with a really tall big man holding a triangle, <laughs> a tiny triangle. It's a power move, honestly. I think <laughs> like, it's, it's like very empowering are. for you, Billy. I love that. All right, well, do we have anything? Well, else I want to play like we a big have... instrument. Okay, <laughs> like a stand up bass or something. Like a tuba. Like a tuba. All right, tuba would be good trombone. For you. Yeah, tuba bass has been clarinet. missing. Yeah, tuba has been missing from uh, <laughs> bass clarinet. Yeah, from pop music. Where did yeah. the tuba go? Uh, yeah, no, I'm I don't like know. the t- oboe has made appearances yeah. like neutral milk cartel like and everything. Too, yeah. Well, Kenny G, I'm like too feminine for a tuba. <laughs> French horn. I played French horn in fourth grade. I, I played saxophone for a bit. Me too. French horn, you fucking would. I was I was super unique. I was the only French <laughs> horn player. I was also prepubescent, so I weighed sixty pounds carrying a seventy pound French horn. No, French mm-hmm. horns are cool. Yeah. It was sick. I still can remember the smell of that spitty mm. thing. Yeah. I played the flute and the piccolo because I was first chair, so I got to play both. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Not an overachiever or neurotic person at, at all. all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have anything else to say about our weekend? No, I will just say it was Final thoughts. the best day ever after CrimeCon. That's true. Yes. And we still... Are we doing CrimeCon next year? Fuck yeah. Obviously. Okay. I know you, it's in you our li- said we're doing a live show. It's it's a, well, well, we Billy will. Needs to and we also need to uh, go think on the about, cruise. Well, I don't know about the cruise, but uh, Epcot. Yeah. Doing Guys, a, doing if we don't make it to the cruise, it's Billy's fault. Just <laughs> yeah, so you know, Jack we, and I want to go. We want to go on the CrimeCon cruise and we need to convince Billy to as well. I have never been on a cruise and all I, so all I hear is horror stories about I don't, cruises. I've never been on a cruise I either. haven't either. I have. That's why we're going. Cruises okay. have morgues, I bet, as you as you I know. know. Right they now. do. Yes. yes, every cruise ship has a morgue in case mm-hmm. people die, so the body doesn't well, decompose. Deal with it, yeah. Oh, so it's basically just a refrigerator. Well, sometimes they actually just throw them overboard. Too. They sh- Billy. They do waters, because right? those are yes, and they're Whatever. all they're all based out of places that you mean you know, the, the people on the ship do that. No, the pe- Well, actually, some of the people on the ship do it. Some of the people that have been Who killed work on, on the those, ship. Yes. Well, if they're being the crime cases, if that, they're, if they're mean, being murdered, I'm just saying get if the, there's off. a body. Yes, of I understand. Course, most yes. of the people who are disappear are thrown overboard. But there's yes, yeah. You can't disappear by still being on the ship. It's not a good place. Cruises. Sorry. So, so we're gonna go. Sorry. Sorry, Carnival Cruise. So we'll I know you, you wanted to. Uh, I mean, listen <laughs> to, to anybody that could be a potential sponsor. Alexis and I love cruises. We're going, and we're mm-hmm. going. And Jared loves a cruise. I'm sure he went on a shitty one when he was a kid. <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Loved it though. I'm sure. Isn't it like all you can eat though? Everything. I, like I think 15 it's generally pounds, inclusive, yeah. but except <laughs> if you're on one of those like princess, like the really expensive ones. Yeah. All right, we're going. 
Crime Con Cruise, we're there. Mm-hmm. October. We're All right. Um, well, and we killed some time. Thanks for killing some time with us. Thanks for killing some time. Say bye, Jerry. Sign off. Bye. Thanks for killing some time. With Jerry. With Jerry. <laughs> and Billy? Yes. And Billy. Oh, and Billy. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. We need a better sign off. Bye we forever. Need a better sign off. Bye forever. <laughs> Jesus.